Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today without my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. He is not ill this time, he's just, uh, maybe he's off buying apples. Something of that nature. Anyway, I'm here and I suppose I'll just have to be enough today for you. So, there were a couple of things that on the last show I had said we wanted to go into. One of them was the uh, plot in Michigan to kidnap the governor. We haven't seen a lot of movement on that. And so I'm still waiting for some uh, more information to kind of come uh, to light before we talk about it. If you weren't listening to the last show, this is in relation to a group of militia people that were plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan. And it's just, it's it's kind of a more complicated story than it's being out, made out to be due to alleged misuse of emergency powers by the governor. And it's just it's just this whole thing. One other issue... Or one other story that I had said we were going to talk about, and which we do have a fair bit of information on now, is the ice hysterectomy claim. Now, this relates to a claim, I think it came out last month originally. A group called Project South wrote to various um, people involved with um, ICE, which is effectively America's uh, immigration enforcement agency. They would be the people responsible for deporting migrants and taking care of the border. And it alleged that in one of the facilities in which uh, ICE detained immigrants, there had been a great deal of hysterectomies carried out on women without their consent. Now, hysterectomy, for those of you who don't know, is the surgical removal of the uterus. The complaint referred to a doctor called the uterus collector, not his real name, and said that many uh, women had alleged that he had improperly removed their uteri, uteruses. Not sure if that's from the Latin or Greek, so I'm not sure which way to go on that. Now, at the time, that caused a shit show, just a, a total shit show. There were people saying that this harkened back to the old days of the American eugenics program, which outlasted the Nazis by several decades, so just an important thing to note there claims that this was structural racism, claims of all sorts of things. Now, ICE, for their part, denied it. They said that their records showed that only, I think, two hysterectomies had been performed in that facility over a number of years. But that didn't really stop it because the expectation is that ICE would deny it. And the facility in question was run by a third party. So even if ICE was denying it, they may not have had the on-the-ground knowledge to realise what was happening. So, what has happened since then? Well, since then, there have been several investigations into this by Associated Press, by various people. What we can say, looking at those and looking at the results of those, is that no one has been able to find any proof of any doctor, including the doctor in question, in that region performing enough hysterectomies to necessitate the usage of the name the of the name the uterus collector the hospital in question came out and said that from their records only two hysterectomies had been carried out in the last number of years in that region and that while the doctor in question did own a small surgery of his own uh, away from the hospital something like that would have been done in the hospital had it been done at all now that's not kind of the end of it there have been allegations then. So the, the, the story then kind of moved on from forcible sterilization by a doctor in the employee of ICE 
to a more general one about medical consent. Then people started talking to other women who'd gone there, looking at their files, and basically saying that some of the procedures undergone may have been unnecessary, or perhaps the women, because they were detained in an immigrant detention facility, they were vulnerable people, many of them didn't speak English, maybe they hadn't quite understood what they were signing up for. Now, ICE, for their part, have said that there were translators there, that everyone knew what they were doing, but at this time, it really seems like it's moved from there was malfeasance under the purview of ICE to maybe this particular doctor committed malfeasance. Now, and as to why a doctor would do that, it would be because they can bill for any of the surgeries that they undertake. So what could have happened here, and where people are now focusing their attention, is on the idea that this doctor may have carried out unnecessary procedures on some women or may have not gotten full and informed consent as in you know got them to sign things got all the paperwork but because of the fact that some of them didn't speak english or they didn't really understand what they're signing up for and they ended up undergoing other procedures now it is important to note there that of the procedures that um people like the new york times and the ap have been looking at None of them are hysterectomies. None of them are anything. That, obviously, a hysterectomy would sterilize a woman. None of these would sterilize a person. However, if this is shown to be the case, it's still effectively a non-consensual medical procedure and a surgical procedure at that. So not a great option. But that is still under investigation. But what does seem to have been taken off the table is this idea that there was mass hysterectomies, effectively forcible sterilizations in an ICE facility. So that would mean that the, the whistleblower who led to the complaint by Project South, and I'll include a link to the full complaint in the uh, underneath this podcast, so you can have, go and have a look at it. That whistleblower had said that she estimated 20 women had had hysterectomies over a course of six years. Now, all of those were concerning this single doctor. So this may mean that the the whistleblower was incorrect. It may mean that the report was incorrect. So on the the ice doctor distinction, that is an important distinction to make here because obviously if it is something that was caused at the behest of ice, it's an entirely different scale uh, when you look at consequences as to if this was done basically at the behest of one doctor who was looking to make money. Not really of much consolation to the women involved, but if it was an ICE issue, well, then you would expect to see that policy in mel- in multiple detention centres impacting upon a massive amount of people. The medical director of came out and said that any kind of medical care decision concerning detainees are made by medical personnel, not by law enforcement personnel. They say that detainees are always given informed consent and that a medical procedure like a hysterectomy would never be performed unless a doctor could show clearly that a, a detainee had consented to it and was willing to undergo the procedure up to the moment when it happened. So Project South, the, the attorney who was the lead investigator for Project South, uh, what eventually became Project South's complaint, the thing that started all this off, told the Washington Post that she didn't speak to or identify any women who had undergone a hysterectomy before submitting the report, but that she included the allegations in the report in order to cause an investigation into the validity of it. On the procedure, if there, if there was, if there were procedures being carried out 
unnecessarily and they weren't hysterectomies, what exactly were they? Well, what people like the New York Times are saying has happened, and again, this is still under investigation. The New York Times spoke to a number of doctors who said some of these procedures looked unnecessary, but the New York Times and these doctors both know that it's entirely possible that the patient notes are incomplete or that there's other factors at play where these would have been at the appropriate, um, it would have been appropriate to have a surgical intervention. So just keep that in mind. So basically what they're saying is that women would go to this gynecologist and he would say that they had uh, cysts or masses that needed to be removed. And it looks like some of these women may have had cysts, but that they were small and just kind of naturally occurring ones that don't usually require surgical uh, intervention. So the Times say that they interviewed 16 different women who were concerned about gynecological care they received while they were at the uh, detainments or the detainment. Uh... So the Times say they interviewed 16 different women who were concerned about the gynecological care they received while at uh, the detention centre. So all 16 were treated by the doctor in question. Not unusually, he is, I, I say that he is the detention center's primary gynecologist. The New York Times then gave those cases to five different gynecologists, and they say that this doctor consistently overstated the, the risks associated with cysts or masts, consistently overstated the risk uh, to the patient of cysts and masses uh, attached to their reproductive organs. The New York Times also says that some of the women say that they never had some of the symptoms that are listed in their medical chart. Things like uh, chronic pain, chronic pelvic pain, heavy bleeding. Some of the women have said that they did not uh, experience those symptoms. Now, the New York Times did not say how many some of the women actually is. I mean, it could be one, it could be two, it could be almost all of them. So there are multiple investigations into this ongoing, and I will keep an eye on this and I'll see what happens to it. We'll see what we can get. We're still in the allegation phase, but just from the status of the investigations and things of that nature, you can kind of see that the situation has changed and there no longer really seems to be any, any assumption that there were mass sterilizations or mass hysterectomies here or that ICE was in any way promoting the sterilization of uh, immigrants in one of their detainment facilities. As said, not much difference to the women involved, although I suppose it's better to get an unnecessary surgery that doesn't sterilize you versus an unnecessary surgery that does sterilize you. But it now looks like it's gone from something institutional and reminiscent of America's earlier eugenics movement to something that, if it did happen, appears to be an individual actor dealing with a vulnerable group of people looking to maximise returns, which I think is, a, is an entirely different scale of problem, although still absolutely something that shouldn't happen, and if it's shown that it did happen, the doctor involved should, at the very least, lose his licence, and then whatever criminal sanctions may follow on from that. But we don't know that. And considering how much this has changed since it first started from this absolutely reprehensible thing that could show uh, an entire government department dealing with immigrants is behaving disgracefully and was put up as something that was emblematic of the systemic racism of the Trump administration into something that is slightly more complicated and 
has complicated media attention by the fact that it's now been shown that the doctor involved is himself Indian. Uh, he received his education in India, although he then went and did his residency in New Jersey. So this seems to complicate matters because the in, the initial narrative was very much one of white supremacy and oppression and uh, the bad old days. And now it seems to be something very much else. I mean, we will keep an eye on this. These investigations could run on for a while, but once I hear about them getting near to a close or if anything else arises in it, I will bring it up to people's attention. The initial thing was covered in Irish media quite widely. Now, now that it's gotten more complicated and we've sort of moved from governmental scale injustice to the potential of individual scale injustice, but also very much not what we originally thought, it's kind of fallen entirely by the wayside. I don't know if any further movement on this is going to be covered, but we will cover it a little bit. So one quick thing before we go on to uh, something of a sports-related story. There was a protest or a speech in front of the doll today it involved the National Party. I think it involved a couple of other people. Antifa turned up and there was a little bit of violence at it. Now, now that is one thing. That is, you know, I'm not going to say that is the old reliable but that is what we expect to see at these things. We expect to see a load of people, young men primarily, dressed in black, screaming abuse at each other, while the guards awkwardly stand in between them. So whatever about the protests, whatever about the march, whatever about the counter-protesters, whatever about the violence. And there was some violence at it. What I found really interesting, and this only comes up that I've seen in the Irish Times report of it, which was put together by um, Colin Gleeson of the Irish Times, I'll put that in a link below as well. It, it's titled Hundreds Clash in Violent Exchanges at Dublin Protests. Now, from the videos I saw, I didn't think there were hundreds of people there, but it's very hard to tell a crowd size from a video. And this definitely sounds like he was on the ground. So I will uh, I will just give that one to him. Now, he does talk about the violence and he does talk about all of that sort of stuff. But what I found was really interesting was when you get to the end of it, because here's what he says. He says, at several points, members of the group of counter-protesters, this would be the Antifa, with their entire faces covered, approached members of the media and demanded to see credentials and identification. Some threatened reporters and attempted to stop the taking of photographs and the shooting of videos. Members of the Gardaí intervened on at least two occasions to stop these interventions turning violent. He gives a quote from a guard, though, which says, you can't go back up there. They have you marked. I won't be able to pull you out. Well, not that I won't be able to pull you out, but you know what I mean. Then he says that the counter-protesters formed a line and refused to allow members of the public or the media to pass while the guards looked at this. He says that he doesn't say he tried to go up the street. He says the Irish Times tried to go up the street. So I don't know if he's referring to himself in some sort of royal sense or he had a, you know, a cameraman or someone with him and it was a group of them he says uh, a man approached him demanded identification they refused to give it the man uh, refused to identify himself and then the man said i'm gonna have to ask you to move on they ask him you know are you an under member undercover member of the guards do you have any right to move us on and the guy says no now there's a couple of things interesting about this 
The first one is this. He doesn't say they just approached the Irish Times. He says they approached members of the media, multiple members of the media. So why is it not mentioned in any of the other media reports that you effectively have a group of masked protesters with a, shall we say, known propensity for violence, trying to control the movements of the media, threatening them with violence, in some cases getting close enough to the actual carrying out of that threat that Gardaí have to intervene on more than one occasion, and then guards having to advise reporters and members of the media that they can't go past this group because of the danger to themselves. That strikes me as something that should turn up in the reporting of other members of the media. But it doesn't. Not that I can see. And that strikes me as a, a little bit weird, really. I mean, there's nothing the media likes talking about more than the media. I realise now I am myself talking about the media while technically being a member of the media. So I'm really making that problem worse through this entire line of things. But I think it just shows you how true it is. Media love to talk about media. Media take threats against media. Any member of the media, respectable member, they probably wouldn't care if anything happened to me, as a threat against all of them. And yet here are people threatening them and restricting their movement and demanding to see their ideas... It just doesn't get mentioned. And to be honest, my main source of surprise here was that I got mentioned in the Irish Times. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe maybe no one else who actually wrote about it were any of the people who were approached by these groups. I would suspect that the actual issue here is that some of the people involved either don't want to give themselves trouble don't want to give what they see as the far-right ammunition by pointing this out, or agree with the counter-protesters, and maybe think they're a little bit misguided in how they're going about it, but think they're absolutely the right sort of chaps. And therefore, you know, you don't want to put them down by putting out something that should be uh, an issue. Although, speaking of journalists, I did see a couple of the people there that uh, had certain markings on them, that kind of reminded me of Sirode, the uh, dissident Republican group, whose offices were raided during the investigation into the murder of Lyra McKee. And Sirode were quite involved in uh, the media circle after that. Assuming this is them, or some of their members, and it might not be, uh, you can be mistaken about these things, wouldn't be the first time that they've showed up at something like this. And that sort of dissident Republican socialist fringe is pretty well represented in the Antifa. So anyway, it may be nothing. It may just be that no one involved other than someone in the Irish Times thought this was worth bringing to people's attention. But I just thought it was an interesting little thing in that it's only in one copy that this gets detailed. That tactic, by the way, of trying to control the activity of media, of blocking them, of threatening them with violence, fairly widespread amongst these kind of groups in America and in Europe. Very popular amongst far-left groups in general. Not that these groups will ever be called far-left, and I mean, we're not going to see the sort of uh, rise of the far-left pieces we've been seeing on the far-right even when they start threatening journalists, apparently. 
So from what is utterly unsurprising, both in the fact that Antifa have worked their way up to threatening journalists, and the fact that it didn't really get mentioned anywhere but one source, let's go to something that actually is surprising. And it's this. This is the rare sports story on TRSI, and of course it's rare because I know nothing about sport other than tennis and shooting, really, and fencing, but not really sports of general interest to people. But here's here's what happened with World Rugby. World Rugby has come down, and World Rugby is the, the global uh, rugby union uh, body. And they've come down and they have had this long consultation process where they were basically looking at whether or not transgender women, which is to say people who are biologically male and who identify as female, should be allowed to participate in international contact rugby with women. And the result they came back with, and this was kind of shocking, wasn't like yes but they've got to reduce testosterone which is the average kind of fudge on this they came back and said no this should not be allowed at the international level now at the local level the countries are free to choose what they want to do they don't have to abide by this but at the international level there will be no more transgender women taking part in contact rugby No, well, they can play in the men's league if they want, but the men's league is a catch-all. Anyone can go play in the men's league. And it's really interesting in that not only did they make this decision, but they put together a months-long consultation. They talked to many of the transgender group. They reviewed the available research. Some of the research I've never seen before, so I'm not sure if they carried out some of this research or if they just did a deep dive into this and pulled out everything. And it is fascinating because it goes into and summarizes in a really good way the differences between men and women in athletic performance between men and women and i'll put a link to this as well they put up not just the new guidelines they put up a statement with it they put up an faq they put up a couple of other things including a review of the state of research and they said that they had come to this looking to see if inclusion uh, and safety could be... You could find a bridge between those two things and that you couldn't. So here's um, here's what they say is the... They say that the performance difference between biological males and females ranges from 10 to 160%. These differences are the result of biology, which is one of those things that deeply unpopular now to talk about. So they looked at on the raw stats. Look, what's the difference between males and females generally? They said when you look at VO2 max per kg, which is basically the amount of oxygen you can take in, you're looking at a difference of 20 to 40% more in males. When you look at sprint speed, now these are, by the way, these are mostly looking at elite level athletes. With sprint speed, you're looking at 10 to 15% greater to men. When you look at kicking, men perform 20% better. Throwing, 20 to 30% better. Weightlifting, 30% better. Punching, 160% better. Which is unsurprising because men on general have uh, massively greater upper body strength. There's some research showing that untrained men, as in men who don't weightlift, don't do anything, 
are stronger than elite level female athletes. But that's, those are, this kind of research is slightly controversial. The idea that there are differences between men and women and that they're biological and they are quite broad. Where this kind of went into new territory for a sporting organization is they looked at what happens when you artificially reduce the level of testosterone. So the Olympic Committee, some of the running committees, some of the other sports committees have come and said that, well, as long as a transgender woman has reduced her testosterone for 12 months, well, then we'll allow them to compete against women. But what's happened now is World Rugby has come back and they said, well, we've looked at all of this. And in our our overview of this is the reduction of testosterone removes only approximately one-fifth of muscle and strength advantages that biological males have. So say after 12 months of testosterone reduction, they might be 0 to 9% worse. And then they say, for these variables, significant advantages for biological males males remain after testosterone reduction. And they say, well, what's the implication for this? And they say, well, we've modelled what could happen if a um, if a female athlete were to get a hit from a transgender athlete. And it's not great. They point out that head and neck forces are about 20 to 30% greater in men's elite rugby than in women's elite rugby, just as a result of the fact that they are so much bigger. And then they look at scrums in particular. They say that the force applied during a scrum in male rugby is 40 to 120% greater than female rugby. Now, just don't, I don't want to just keep throwing stats at you. just want to throw a couple of raw numbers so I can say these are not small differences. Like for anyone who kind of goes, well, you know, 40%, is that really a massive difference? If you've ever gone weightlifting, a difference of 40%, if someone can lift 40% on top of what you're lifting, they are staggeringly stronger than you. Just massively so. The thing I, f- I find most interesting about this, that actually most informative is the FAQ that they released with it. It's 12 pages long, and it goes through everything from why are you doing this to uh, a list of the common arguments against this sort of thing and for allowing transgender players to take part. And then they talk about, well, previous to this, you allowed transgender women to play if they'd reduced their testosterone for, to a certain level for a certain length of time. You know, why not stay with that? To which World Rugby says, well, that was all based on the premise that lowering testosterone was sufficient to bring these people to the level of a woman. And we now know that's not the case. So we needed to change this. Also, they say they were getting calls and emails from players who were worried about this. They also go through a lot of the issues with some of the research they used, whether or not it can be counted, whether the modelling can be counted upon. You really get the sense from this that these are people who put an incredible amount of effort into this. And probably money as well. Like, this cannot have been cheap to do. One thing I, I, one thing I did find interesting is you get this kind of Michael Phelps arguments a lot in this, where people say, okay, yeah, transgender women are be- going to be better at sport than natural-born women 
because the gap between men and women is so great that even after testosterone reduction, they're still just going to have so many physiological advantages. Everyone has different physiological adaptions. They are better at certain things. Michael Phelps has less lactic acid buildup than other people. He is proportionately really weird. Just absolutely suited for swimming. Surely if this is unfair, then it's unfair for Michael Phelps to compete because he's going to go against other people and beat them when they've trained harder because he's just genetically better suited for it. And World Rugby's answer is basically, yes, absolutely, that's what happens in sports. Some people stand out because they are exceptional in some way due to genetics or they have certain attributes necessary to make them champion. But then they go on to say, and this is one of those things that's totally true, but you can't say. And he says, when this is from the, the World Rugby FAQ, when you compare people who were assigned male at birth to similar or, un, or matched people who are assigned female, we discover large, typical, and extreme physiological and performance differences as a result of another attribute or factor, testosterone's effect on physiology. Then goes through how biologically males are tend to be larger, have larger hearts, different skeletons, you know, the general basic differences between men and women. They say, all these factors create physiological differences that are so large that they create insurmountable performance advantages for the best males in almost all sports, along with associated risk factors for females in direct contact competition with them. It is for this reason that sport is separated into categories of biological sex rather than gender. Few would dispute that if athletes who are assigned male at birth and athletes who are assigned female at birth competed directly against one another, the outcome would be skewed so far in favour of males that every champion, and indeed every elite athlete, Olympic participant and scholarship recipient would be male, based on the fact that many thousands of men and boys are faster, stronger and more powerful than the very best women in almost every sporting pursuit and discipline every year. As a result, Andrew and influence physiological development is an attribute that does not create meaning for a sporting result, rather it undermines it if direct comparisons are made despite the difference it creates. What that last line basically means is, yes, there will always be differences, some people will be better suited, but in this instance there is such an extreme difference between men and women and between the bodies of transgender women and women, that were we to allow this to happen, it wouldn't simply be that they are better at the sport. It would be that they are so much better at the sport, they're physiologically so better adapted to it, that it would just destroy any sort of competition in the sport. And so all of this is, is absolutely true. It's, it's well evidenced for the most part, although some of the studies on testosterone suppression on transgender people aren't great just because it's a very small population and it's one of those things i think it's very easy for people to forget particularly in the modern world how large the physiological differences are between men and women and particular how much stronger particularly when looking at upper body strength men are than women i mean it doesn't really come up nowadays so everyone kind of assumes it doesn't really come up nowadays, so it's very easy to kind of fall into this, yeah, sure, there are some differences, but they're probably not that major. 
And, you know, some women are stronger than men. Yes, that is the case. But taking as an average, men are just so much physically stronger than women, it is actually kind of incredible. But then we're a strongly sexually dimorphic species. But again, it's the sort of thing that people don't like being brought up nowadays because we've got very much into the sort of gender fluidity kind of things. And any sort of talk of innate biological differences tends to sort of throw people off. But sport is very good. It's one of those things that people should get involved in because it keeps you grounded a little bit in reality. It is interesting to note how the document deals with uh, transgender men, which are biological women who state that they're men. What they say is that transgender men have to provide confirmation of their physical capabilities. But if they do, they can play men's rugby. And when they said, well, why is this? They basically said, well, for exactly the same reason that we don't want transgender women playing with women. They could seriously injure the other players. In this instance, the only person likely to be injured is the transgender player. So because it relates to them, they can give informed consent to that. And if they're perfectly capable going, look, I think I can play against these people who are statistically going to be faster, stronger, larger, then, you know, that's that's on you. And if you get injured, you get injured. But it's your choice. I will link all of this down in the uh, the bottom of this podcast. And it is well worth looking at some of the actual research that these guys looked at. Because I have never seen such an exhaustive investigation of this area. And I mean, the International Olympic Committee has done a little bit on this. But they have always gone towards the greatest thing that they can uh, to keep transgender players in uh, women's sports, whatever those women's sports are. Whereas World Rugby is the only group I've seen look at some of the newest research on testosterone and the impact that can make uh, for trans women and basically say, well, look, this is not, this isn't even a stopgap. Some of these people have no reductions, in which case this is just a man playing against a woman's team, uh, playing against women. And that's unacceptable for the following reasons. And we need to do this to protect the integrity of female sports. Because we don't do it, well, that podium is just going to be full of men. And that's the long and the short of it. I would say this was a spectacular policy to try and debate internally. Because they did bring in some of the transgender groups. All the presentations are online as well. Various doctors and... I mean, a couple of the groups have already come out against this, people like Stonewall in the UK. The problem they have is that they basically get to stand up and say, this policy makes people feel bad. And I fully expect that this policy will make people feel bad. The problem is the opposing point is, well, you could injure the people you're playing against quite severely. But anyway, they're well worth looking into. They are... Interesting, we will see if this spreads. Now that one group has done it, we'll see what happens. Now, this only came in uh, on the 9th, which was, I think, Friday. So, I would imagine come Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the backlash against this is going to come hard and fast from the transgender charities. You'll also get a really strong backlash against this by some of the major LGBT charities, That's not really unsurprising. Most of them have switched massively onto transgender issues. They say this is because, you know, this is obviously a vulnerable population and they have to work to protect these people. 
Personally, I think why we're seeing this happen and we're seeing groups like Stonewall that were traditionally very involved in uh, stuff focusing more on the LGB side of things is very simple. I think it's because the primary purpose of organizations after a certain point becomes the replication of that organization. They're basically organisms and nothing wants to die. So Stonewall and these groups, when they achieved gay marriage, when they achieved all of these other things... Well, yes, you could stay around and you could monitor for civil rights complaints and incidents of gay bashing and things like that. But those big campaigns you used to be able to do and that drew in funding, well, what else have you got to campaign for? And so naturally NGOs are always driven to continue on a path. There's always a further development they will go after because if they don't go after that, then they'll die and they people involved will lose their jobs and no one likes that. So this is where they can still campaign. So they'll put in a lot of effort. And one of two things will happen there. Either World Rugby will back off and they will change the policy, or they will buckle down. And if they keep the policy, I wouldn't be surprised to see other organizations also move in this direction. And every subsequent organization that moves in this direction makes it easier for the next one to do so. Now, there will be a big pushback against World Rugby. I would expect to see advocacy organizations start to try and target sponsors involved in rugby then they'll also go to the national rugby unions and try and keep it out at the national level and whatever it's the national union uh, rugby unions people's choice and so we we might see movement here now one of the the i suppose one objection to this that people might put forward is that world rugby shouldn't just tell players who they can play with maybe female players want to play with transgender uh, women. Maybe they want to try themselves against you know, a stronger, faster, harder-hitting opponent, and they think they'll get better by doing that, or they'll think that, well, you know, it'll come down to skill in the end. It won't come down to those things. And if you're confident in your skill, then you should have no problem playing against a transgender woman. World Rugby did poll their players, and if you take out the unknowns, the majority of female players say they don't want to play with transgender well sorry they don't say they don't want to they say transgender females shouldn't be allowed to play at those levels and just before we wrap up there's one thing i wanted to bring up we've seen in other countries that when academics and other people have tried to push back against covid19 related lockdowns and things of that nature one of the things they brought up is that people are not going to the hospital for things that they absolutely should be things like cancer checks things like heart checkups the sort of things that can be chronic problems that obviously haven't gone away and that people are avoiding are going to the hospital to deal with because they are either the hospitals are on a restricted capacity due to COVID-19 or because people are afraid to go to hospitals because they're afraid they might get COVID-19. And basically the argument is that this will, over the long term, cause more deaths than COVID-19 would have caused. I mean, the recent letter we saw from British academics, I think that said that the estimates they had seen were that there would be an additional 60,000 cancer deaths due to missed cancer screening appointments. Now, what we found out, uh, what was reported in the Irish Times, is that they were reporting on a the annual conference of the Irish Hospital Consultants Association. Again, I'll, I'll put a link to this article in the bottom. And at that conference, it was said that 90% of women have not responded to invitations for cervical screenings and what was also said at that 
was that people were afraid to go into hospitals or clinics or anything like that due to COVID-19. Now, those screenings are to look for early signs of cervical cancer. So they've sent out 110,000 invitations to these things and 12,000 women have attended them. Now, now with something like cancer, early diagnosis is key. So with cancer, early diagnosis is key. Cervical cancer, if diagnosed early, is one of the, I wouldn't say easiest to treat, but most treatable forms of cancer. As long as it is detected early. It, early detection is the key to dealing with cervical cancer. We have nearly 100,000 people, 98,000 women, who have not attended one of these checks because of COVID-19, because of fear about it. Fear that up until recently has been pretty relentlessly stoked up. Fear is not a positive emotion, even in instances of danger. You look at the danger, you analyse it, you assign a risk profile to it, and you adjust your behaviour accordingly. You do not need to be afraid of it. You simply do what you can in a reasonable fashion and you try and mitigate the risk to the largest extent possible. When people start getting afraid, fear is a very short road to panic. And when you're panicked, you do stupid things. You, you overreact. You may do things that you think are helpful, but actually open you to increased risk. You don't want people being afraid. But a lot of the messaging in Ireland has been based around fear and the imminent risk of death and how anything that needs to be done needs to be done and there's no questioning of that as such i mean we've seen what three doctors who lost positions or were forced to resign because they spoke out on this issue so what we don't know here is how many of these women were likely to have found something at the screening that they've missed and how many of the women by the time they get to the next screening, by the time they feel secure going into a hospital setting, how many of them will something have progressed to a point where what would have been an easy fix is now either not fixable or there's now a degree, there's a risk profile there that didn't need to be. And well, you've got 98,000 chances of you know, to roll that dice and see what the outcome is. And there's lots of stuff like this. There are far more impacts from fear about a disease, from restrictions due to a disease, from all of these things, then we tend to believe. Which is not to say that the restrictions are not justifiable or that they are not the appropriate step. All I'm saying is that the discussion of this area in Ireland has been left to two groups. One, who are like a bad day away from saying we've got to round up the infected, put them against walls and shoot them if that'll give us zero covid and one who say there is no COVID-19, there is no disease, this is all a lie. And that we might be better suited, calmer people who were able to sit down and say, there is a risk, but what is the risk? How do we quantify it? How do we manage it? What should be done? Um, it's interesting, particularly for me, when I talk to friends of mine across Europe, the reaction in those countries, in most of the European countries, to COVID, even when they have put in place some of the same policies we have, there's been much less of a frenzy about it. There's been much less of a sense of fear. There's just, well, this is the appropriate step. In Ireland, we seem to be constantly on the verge of just catastrophizing this thing, turning it into like a, an Armageddon, a situation where it is actively malevolent and out to hurt you, as opposed to just a thing. We should not say it's dangerous, but just 
the level of public fear about it and the level of public willingness to accept restrictions on everything from civil liberties to businesses, I think is simply disproportionate. And I think that is a debate that should be had based upon what we know of the disease, the risk profile. And a large part of this would be helped if the HSE and the Department of Health would bother collecting useful statistics on this. I said before that I had been asking the Department of Health for a statistic called the um, infection fatality rate. We use what's called the case fatality rate. The case fatality rate is people who have been confirmed to have a diagnosis of COVID against the deaths. The infection fatality rate has that included in it, but also you pick, you estimate how many people are infected who won't get a test or are totally asymptomatic, and then you compare the deaths to that. And there are best estimates of of how many cases of COVID-19 are asymptomatic. The problem with the CFO is it gives a massively, is it gives a sense of the lethalness of COVID-19, which is not borne out by reality because there are so many asymptomatic cases. So I said in the podcast before that I was trying to get the department felt to give me the IF4 figures so that I could see what the actual expected fatality of COVID-19 in Ireland was. From what I've heard back from the department, they don't have those statistics, as in internally they do not exist. This is not a esoteric advanced statistical concept that you know, maybe some of those bigger countries have, but we're just too small, too plucky to, to have the resources to create. This is a standard piece of statistical data, and we're just not bothering to gather it. Or if we are bothering to gather it, we're effectively hiding it. I don't know why. I'm not going to speculate as to why. But I just wanted to bring up quickly this story about cervical screening to, um, to kind of highlight that there, there are costs to any restriction we put in place to any way that this thing is, is presented in the media and not enough people are cognizant of them and the thing that needs to be avoided is fear what we need is rational analysis of a risk it's not armageddon it's not malevolent it is a disease it should be treated as a disease and we as a society should come to an understanding of what is an acceptable level of loss due to this for an acceptable level of curtailment. And that level may be higher, the level of deaths that we may have to accept may be higher than what we would want in a perfect world. But the trade-offs, the secondary trade-offs, things like the amount of people who might get cancer that aren't caught in screens because they don't go to them because they're fearful, or increases in suicide rate from people losing their jobs, or increases in poverty leading to long-term health issues or increased risk of death. Those are all things we have to take into account. And I don't think we have so far. We're starting to see more of a movement in this direction. I think as it becomes increasingly clear that things are not going well for a zero COVID situation. I mean, we saw in New Zealand, they beat COVID-19. Fantastic job. Then it comes back. Then they beat it again. Then within a couple of days of beating it again, well, two more people turn up with COVID-19. Now, both of those were caught during the mandatory quarantine process. But it just shows you this is not a one and done. Even if you can get to it, you have to maintain a level of zero COVID or things can just start up again. And no one has been yet able to explain to me 
how that can be achieved in any reasonable sense. New Zealand is, is not Ireland. New Zealand is far more spread out. It's a very rural population, which massively helps them. We're quite spread out. We're quite rural. We have a lot more going on. We are a lot more linked into the world. It's, it's not the same. And we are not the Faroe Islands. We are not these places. Anyway, this has been me here on TRSI. Michael may be gone, but I am as consistent and eternal as taxes. Apart from those episodes I missed. But you know what? Let's not let the truth get in the way of a good story and setting the right mood. I hope you've uh, enjoyed the episode. Michael has assured me he will be back for Wednesday. I assure you I am looking forward to that more than you are. Because if you've never tried it, I recommend you stand in front of a computer screen for an hour trying to talk without losing track of where you are or what you were talking about with no one else there to ask a question or keep you on point. It's a, it's a rather spectacularly fun time. I recommend it. I, in fact, recommend you do it several times a week so you can get the real impact of it. Anyway, I have been, as always, Gary Kavner, wishing you all the best. <laughs>